Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 93, Recap and Precap. Following listener suggestions, today I'm going to remind you of where we are in 802 AD and preview what's coming up for the Byzantines in the 9th century. Rather than simply reiterate the events of the 700s, I want to reorient you to how people thought and felt in 802, so that when the story begins next episode, we all hit the ground running. I also give you an outline of future events, so that the 9th century can more easily take shape in your mind. Before we get there though, I've saved a couple of relevant listener questions for today. Listener G asked about whether I'd come across Byzantine historians commenting on, say, Augustus or Trajan. Do they have any interesting perspectives on the pagan past? Sadly, so far the answer is no. Theophanes's chronicle began with the rise of Diocletian, and Procopius just wrote about his times. Certainly, there are references to the classical era empire, Many Byzantine authors had read their Tacitus and Polybius, but they hadn't felt the need to add anything of their own. I doubt I will come across much, as most Byzantine historians only wrote about the recent past, while for earlier periods they merely summarise earlier histories. I will update you when I come across something in that vein. But I would just like to talk a little more about Theophanes and our sources going forward. I've been quoting Theophanes and Nicephorus for a long time now, and that's because they're the only historians who cover the period from the rise of the Arabs to the fall of Irene. They are our only eyes on the subject, and they are both using the same lost source to describe large parts of it. Nicephorus's history stopped a while ago, uh, though he will soon appear in the narrative in his own right, while Theophanes accompanies us up to the year 813. 
So from the elevation of the Emperor Diocletian to the year 813, we have one chronicle attributed to the monk and iconophile Theophanes, an impressive achievement. Of course, Theophanes may not have written a word of it. The man behind the chronicle was George Sincellus, as you'll read it in English. George was from Syria and was also a monk. He rose to become a Sincellus, uh, one of the patriarch's advisors, and began compiling a universal chronicle using different histories he found in the palace archives. George will be exiled by our new emperor Nicephorus for conspiring against him and sent to Theophanes' monastery in Anatolia. I'm telling you this now as it's not important enough to be included in the narrative. George and Theophanes became good friends, but George eventually fell ill and died while still working on the chronicle. So he begged his friend to finish it for him. George was a great intellectual and scholar. Theophanes, less so. He did his best to edit and stitch together the material that George had compiled, but it doesn't seem like he added a huge amount himself. The Chronicle is hugely valuable to us today because it preserves so much information whose original sources have been lost. The Chronicle's value was recognised at the time, and it was much copied, including into Latin, which helped it survive the ravages of time. Theophanes thus gets the credit and all the quotations from me, when really George should be more praised. And of course, both men were summarising earlier writers, like the patrician Trajan, who we believe worked directly for Justinian II and slandered him royally once the slit-nosed emperor returned from exile. Hopefully, though, you can see why it was easier to just say, Theophanes says X. Beyond 813, we have many more historians to draw on. Some writing near the time, others published centuries later, but like Theophanes, preserving the work of earlier authors. As a result of this jumble, I will probably be quoting individual historians less often from now on. A couple of questions came in on iconoclasm, so I thought it better to answer them today, as I need to remind you of the debate over icons which will continue to rage when our narrative resumes. Listener RV says, What are the parallels between iconoclasm and the later Protestant Reformation? Might it be fair to see iconoclasm as a kind of proto-Protestantism? An excellent question, But the answer, I think, is no. The main parallel, as I see it, between the two is that Martin Luther made similar points about icons and religious images as Constantine V did. Neither wanted believers to mistake the representation of a spiritual figure for the real thing. They both used evidence from the Bible to justify their arguments, Beyond that, though, I think the two movements are quite different and unconnected. In very broad terms, the Protestant Reformation was a movement which questioned authority. Martin Luther attacked the practices of the Catholic establishment and wanted people to be free to communicate with God without interference. 
whereas Byzantine iconoclasm was a state-directed initiative. Constantine wanted to tell everyone how they should worship to stop them wrecking his foreign policy. He wanted people to stop making their own choices and to do what their local imperially appointed priest told them to. There may well have been clergymen in 8th century Byzantium who had proto-Protestant leanings, but they were in a very small minority. The Protestant Reformation unearthed all sorts of passionate feelings about religion, freedom and nationalism. By comparison, Byzantine iconoclasm was a far quieter affair. Two ecumenical councils were held which completely contradicted each other, and yet hundreds of assembled priests accepted each without much rancour. Listener G asks, where else do you think the Byzantine identity crisis that generated iconoclasm shows itself? Do you think it was responsible for any other novel policies? As you may recall, Leo III's other response to the siege of 717 was to create the Ecloi, the law book which drew on Old Testament ideas to bring Byzantine justice more in line with Christian thinking. Between this and an attack on idolatry, you can see how the Roman authorities reacted to the sense that God was turning his back on a sinful people. As for other novel policies, I suppose that's difficult to define. I think a lot of decisions made in the 8th century reflect Roman acceptance that the caliphate was their new neighbour and it was no good trying to get them to move out anymore. Constantine V tried to create a no-man's land in the Taurus Mountains by demolishing fortresses and forcing people to migrate west. He was giving up on the thought of invading the caliphate himself, while Irene exchanged gifts with Harun al-Rashid. She arranged markets for the retreating Arabs. She was trying to establish diplomatic relations with her neighbour. She didn't seem to view him as an unworthy heathen anymore. I think the Roman identity crisis is about accepting the world as it had become. Centred on Constantinople, and organised primarily for survival. That was the new way things were. As we will see, this new calibration will have trouble adapting to an altered world once the Byzantines recover and go on the offensive again. So where are we? in 802 AD. You probably remember that once Irene had her son blinded, the search for her successor began in earnest. By disabling her heir, Irene had made herself a sitting duck. Her ministers, Aetius and Stavrakios, schemed and manoeuvred around her, but it was the finance minister, Nicephorus, who struck first. He put together a coalition of supporters seized the palace, and had himself crowned. That's the political situation. But what about the memories of these people? What did they think about their recent past, and how would that shape their worldview? One way to help you get your head around this might be to compare the events of the 8th century to those of our own times. So, in 802, 
the siege of 717 would have been 85 years earlier. For us, that would be 1931. The 1930s dealt with the fallout from the Wall Street crash and saw the rise of fascism in Europe. It seems like a long time ago, and yet the developments of that period helped define the thought space that we occupy today particularly with regards to capitalism and our own democratic ideology. It seems like an apt comparison with the period of the Ecloi and the first shoots of iconoclasm. Byzantines in 802 still lived in a world defined by the anxieties which the siege had stirred up. Let's push on to the 750s and the heyday of Constantine V's rule when he was parading in triumph through the Hippodrome with Bulgar prisoners in his train. That was about 50 years ago to people in 802. So for us today, that would be 1966. The 1960s are, of course, an iconic decade in Western history, which made a big impact on popular and political culture. Constantine V was not exactly JFK, but the warm nostalgia many feel today for the 60s is not a bad comparison for how Constantine was perceived by some in 802. The emperor didn't die until 775, so people living in 802 would have remembered him and their childhoods would have been rich with tales of the triumphs he achieved. Revisionism, of course, was well on the way too, so that iconophiles could look back on him like their own Mao or Stalin, who had tried to eradicate the God-given icons. From the recent past, the biggest political event would be Irene's Ecumenical Council of 787, which placed icon veneration at the centre of orthodox belief. That was 15 years before 802. And though it's an extremely crude comparison, 9-11 is clearly the event which shapes our modern international politics. The two events share almost nothing in common, except that within the insular world of Constantinople, the council represented the last imperial effort to get right with God. When a major disaster befalls the Byzantines, and it will, men will look back to that great council and view it as responsible for their ills. So what of the future? As I just hinted, a major military and political disaster is on its way. The Roman world has actually been enjoying something like peace and stability since the plague finally abated in 748. That period of calm is what allowed Irene to reverse the policy on icons. Iconoclasm was built on the need to appease God's wrath, and yet no wrath was in sight. A decade into the new century, though, and this disaster will convince some in the military that iconoclasm was right all along. We need to go back to the 1960s. We need to go back to Constantine V's way. He was a huge military success. Perhaps it's because God really does hate idolatry. 
Where Constantine's theology had met little resistance, though, second iconoclasm will be much hated. Irene's council had created a generation of men who saw the icons as a political cause. They will fight to maintain what they perceive to be orthodoxy. It's not they, though, who will succeed in overturning it. As ever, it will be the fate of Roman armies that determine the course of events. More defeats by the Arabs will undermine second iconoclasm, and it will be dismissed from imperial policy in 843. If the first half of the upcoming century remains dominated by familiar issues, the second half will take us more fully into a new world, a multipolar world. Time is running out for the giant Arab caliphate. Its destiny is to break up into its constituent provinces. Though this is ultimately good news for Byzantium, it won't be an end to conflict with their neighbours. Smaller states in Syria and Mesopotamia will continue to jealously guard the Taurus Mountains, while splinter groups will launch attacks on Sicily and Crete. Meanwhile, the Slavs and Bulgars continue to move towards statehood and indeed Christianity, making politics in the Balkans ever more complicated. To the west, the Franks and Lombards will continue to push the Byzantines out of Italy, while the Magyars and Vikings will descend from the north, and Paulicians and Armenians will agitate in the east. This century, in other words, begins our journey into the medieval Roman state that you may have heard of the one whose diplomatic skills and palace intrigues will forever define the word Byzantine in the English language. You won't want to miss it. Join me next time as the new Emperor Nicephorus clears Irene's gowns out of the imperial wardrobe and brings his accounting books deeper into the great palace. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.